Well, if you will, please take out your Bible first and open it to the book of Job. Job chapter 35. And have your confession ready as well. Job 35, and I'll read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll talk for a while, and then I'll come back to these verses. And Elihu, or Elihu, answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say, It is my right before God? That you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. And behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied... What do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Now just very briefly before we pray, what's happening here is a contrast is being drawn between God and man, which is going to uh, uh, begin to form the substance of what we're going to discuss tonight. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word as we've heard from the book of Genesis already and now from Job, these ancient texts which we confess and believe wholeheartedly are the inerrant and infallible inspired word of the living God. And that in these words there is life, should your spirit choose to breathe upon them. And so we ask that you would be pleased to do so. Please give us of your spirit that we might understand. Father, it is late in the evening. Help us to gird up our minds to be able to listen and pay attention. And we thank you and we praise you for what you have already done in times eternal, as well as what you continue to do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we move into another chapter of our confession, I want us to remember a few things. You remember, hopefully from the very beginning of our study, that the confession, I said, and I got this, this language from another man, the confession is, is best read forwards and backwards or side to side. In other words, you don't just read it straight through like a book because there are going to be things said at the beginning that don't make any sense if that's all the information you had. The, the authors of our confession, the confession itself assumes a lot. It, it assumes a biblical understanding of a lot of topics and does not set out to simply uh, justify or verify or defend all of those topics but to summarize and categorize and systematize biblical 
truth. And so as we begin, or as we continue to move forward, rather, continue to move forward, we're always going to be looking backward and, and taking note of things that we actually saw before, but maybe we didn't see them in a particular light. And so whenever I uh, do a recap, which you, you, you all know by now, I'm sort of a... Uh, I enjoy a good recap, put it that way. I enjoy a good gratuitous recap because it helps me uh, make sure that I'm helping you remember everything that we've studied as we move forward. When I do a recap, there are usually two reasons. Number one, just to remind you of what's being said. And if that's the case, and you already remember everything that was said, then whenever I say that, you can say, I already remember it. I can, I can just sort of check out for a few minutes until we get done with that. Or there's another reason that we do a recap, and that is to zero in on certain things that were mentioned, but that are now more applicable, more specific than they were when we originally studied them. And so that's what I want to do, is um, look back at where we've been, not just to say, remember where we've been, but to point out some specific things that are all um, pertinent to the discussion this evening. So... This is not by way of introduction. This is by way of substance of the, the, uh, the lesson or the lecture. So you'll remember in our, in our overall outline of the confession, the first section was called First Principles. And it lays the foundation for everything else that's stated. And that section contained chapters 1 through 6. In chapter 1 we studied a summary of the biblical doctrine of the Scriptures. And from, uh, from this morning, I made reference to this, but in, in that study, hopefully you can see, and hopefully you've come to understand, the Bible as a singular unit of divine revelation. And sometimes some of the language that is used will help make that more obvious. For example... In paragraph 1 of chapter 1, the first three words, the Holy Scripture. Now that's singular. That's, that's setting forth one thing. Now that, this is not definitive because later it does say the Holy Scriptures. But throughout that first chapter, you'll see references to the Holy Scripture. In paragraph 2, under the name of Holy Scripture, singular, or the Word of God written, not words of God, the Word of God. And then it, and it lists the 66 books of the Bible. All these various books come together to form for us one Word of God, one divine revelation. In paragraph 4 of that chapter, the authority of the Holy Scripture. And we see that reference to the Holy Scripture multiple times in that paragraph. Um, it's also again called the Word of God in that paragraph. Singular. It's putting forth revelation in the Scriptures as a singular unit. One unit of revelation. In paragraph 9, we looked at um, what we, we call the analogy of Scripture or the analogy of faith. Both of those are set forth there. The, uh, the fact that the Scriptures interpret themselves... <coughs> all of Scripture will testify to the meaning of each part of it. You'll never find one part that disagrees with the whole. What you'll always find is that the whole comes in to support the meaning of each individual part. 
because it's one singular revelation. It is cohesive. It's consistent. There is a solidarity in the Word of God and a solidarity of the subject matter. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, we studied God and the Holy Trinity. And we learned several things about this God just from paragraph 1 and His attributes. You'll remember that God is true. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. And we talked about the veracity of God, that God is perfectly consistent with Himself in all of His being. He is one true God. He is a simple God. He's not made of parts. He's one simple God. He's infinite. We talked about that this morning. He's not limited by time or space. And therefore, He is immutable. He is most wise in all that He does. In paragraph 3 of that chapter, we see this phrase, "...yet the essence is undivided." Now, that's important in studying the doctrine of the Trinity. There are three persons, but there is only one singular divine essence of the one true living God. Everything about God points to this eternal singularity of being. He is singular in will, in act, and intention. It's all one. That's God. And in chapter 3, we talked about God's decree. And men have actually written on the fact that if you, you read in a lot of books, you'll see the language of decrees. But in the confession, it says of God's decree. Because it is one singular will, one intention, one action contained in the divine decree. In paragraph 1, we see that this decree constitutes or consists of all things. It is exhaustive of everything that has ever or will ever come to pass. In paragraph 3, we learn that a part of this singular decree is that God will save some men for Himself. In chapter 4, we looked at creation. And we see that God begins to work outside of Himself. The decree is in God and creation is out of God. And in paragraphs 1 and 2 we see that God creates. God is creator and there is a creator-creature distinction. God is not one with His creation. He is not in His creation. He is creator. His creation is distinct. And then in chapter 5 we talked about divine providence. That because the decree of God was fully exhaustive, that this God who is outside of creation must engage with or intervene in this creation and work with His creatures to accomplish His decree. In paragraph 2, nothing befalls any by chance without His providence. That is, there's nothing outside of the providence of God. In paragraph 4, we learn that even the fall of man was within the bounds of God's providence. Then we moved to chapter 6 and we studied that fall and the sin of mankind. 
Paragraph 2, we learned that Adam's sin brought corruption to all men. Paragraph 3, that all men are in bondage to sin unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. That same race, which God had already decreed from all eternity to save some of them, we now learn that they're in bondage to sin because of the sin of Adam. Now let's put all that together. One whole, complete unit of divine revelation spoken forth or revealed by one simple, undivided God, one eternal decree of salvation... This Creator must save the creature. The Creator orders all things in creation in order to save the creature. And all men fell in Adam and only Christ can set them free. Now when we begin to put all of that together, God and His nature and His plan and His revelation beside man and His nature, a question arises. How might we summarize the biblical teaching of salvation in such a way that does justice to all that we know about God and Scripture and man? If we wanted to summarize it all up, we've already seen that God is one, Revelation is one, He's one in purpose, one in intention, one in will. If we wanted to bring it all together and see it all together in one, we might say, system. How could we do it? A.W. Pink referencing A.A. A. Hodge put it this way. He says it's very obvious that because God is an intelligence, He must have a plan. I talked about that this morning. If He be an absolutely perfect intelligence, desiring and designing nothing but good, if He be an eternal and immutable intelligence, His plan must be one eternal, all-comprehensive, immutable. That is, all things, from his point of view, must constitute one system and contain a perfect, logical relation in all of its parts. The question we're asking is, what is that system? What system? How might we summarize all of biblical revelation about God and about man and about salvation in one cohesive unit that is logical and, and perfectly logical in, in the relation of all of its parts, what would we call it? We've sort of been dancing around it for the past several weeks in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans 5, beginning at verse 17, Paul says, For if, because of one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now you can see there in those texts that all of the Bible, the, the problem with mankind in its original setting and the, the source of God's salvation in its setting is all narrowed down to two men. Adam and Christ. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. Adam is the source of man's fall. Christ is the source of man's salvation. And I said when we studied those doctrines following Martin Lloyd-Jones that if we don't understand these passages and this concept of Adam and Christ, two men, if we don't understand that, you cannot make sense of the biblical gospel. You cannot make sense of salvation as the Bible sets it forth if you don't understand what happened in Adam and what happened in Christ. So in these texts, we're a little bit closer. We've taken all of divine revelation, all that God is, all that God has revealed, the problem with man, we've brought it all down now to two men. So we're a little bit closer to summarizing it into one cohesive system. So how could we summarize the unified scriptural revelation concerning the one undivided God and His singular purpose and plan to save sinners as it involves these two men? Well, we could, we could call our systemization of the biblical data the theology of Adam and Christ. Or we could call it Adam and Christ theology. Or if we wanted to get creative, we could do, put a slash, slash in there and just do Adam, you're, you're on that side, Adam slash Christ theology. Now that doesn't have much of a ring to it. And there's still a bifurcation there. You've still got two men, two different men. What we're trying to do is bringing it all down into one cohesive system. So then we ask, what do these two men have in common? And we saw that they are both federal heads federal representatives. They both acted as or represented others. They both stood before God representing all of those who were in union with them. We talked about that word federal. So we could call it federal theology. That has a little better ring to it. Some have used the term federalism. Or the more common denomination is Covenant theology. Federal means covenant. Covenant theology. That has a nice ring to it, I think. And it summarizes, it, it, it boils everything down. All of divine revelation, all that God is as one singular undivided essence with one purpose, one intention, one plan, one, one people. It brings it all down into the concept of covenant. Now, in, our, in that main outline, paragraphs or, or chapters 1 through 6, we called first principles. And then chapters 7 through 20, we called the covenant. Chapter 7 through 20, the largest section of the confession is entitled, according to James Renahan in our main breakup of it, the covenant. If you go to our website, 
www.cbctalesville.com. You're going to see that under one of the links, a part of being in a reformed church, one of the categories is being covenantal. We want the world to know that if they come here, they're going to meet a group of people who are covenantal, a group of people who hold to covenant theology. And if you read that little outline there, it sort of summarizes what that means. It means that we believe in the unity of the Bible, one revelation from one God. It means that we hold to a Christocentric interpretation of the Bible. It has one main theme. I showed you that this morning. It says that we believe in a law-gospel distinction, which means the problem and the solution has always been the same for all of human history. There's not a change. And the law sets forth the problem and shows us the problem, and the gospel is the solution in all times and all places. And the Bible teaches that. You'll also see that we believe in one way of salvation for all time, not multiple dispensations of grace based on uh, various hoops that men have to jump through. One way of salvation. And you'll also see that being covenantal means that we have an optimistic view of history. In other words, we believe that there is one plan working to one common goal, and in the end, Christ wins. He will be shown victorious. That's, that's what we want people to know about our church, what we believe as a, a covenantal church. All of that to say we need to understand covenant theology. If we're to understand the Bible, if we're to understand the gospel, if we are to understand the work of Christ, if we are to understand salvation, we have to understand covenant theology at least a little bit. At least understand Adam and Christ. I'm going to quote A.W. Pink a few times. He says, The everlasting covenant, with its shadowings forth, his temporal covenants, so he's basically summarized all of the covenants, form the basis of all of God's dealing with his people. In other words, you can't understand anything the Bible teaches if you don't understand the everlasting covenant and all of the other covenants that show forth or are parts of that everlasting covenant. Speaking of the covenant of works in Eden, he says, until the federal headship of Adam and God's covenant with him in that office be actually perceived, we are without the key to God's dealings with the human race. We are unable to discern man's relation to the divine law, and we appreciate not the fundamental principles upon which the atonement of Christ proceeded. What he's saying in both of those is if you don't understand covenant theology, you can't make sense of the Bible. You can say a lot of things, and, and four out of five of them might be true, and there might be one inconsistency here or there, but you can't make a full, cohesive unit logically connected in all of its parts until you understand covenant theology. Covenant theology sees in Scripture... God's work of self-revelation and salvation carried out through a series of covenants. In other words, to use Hodge's language, the Bible sets forth that one eternal, all-comprehensive, immutable system 
that sustains a perfect logical relation in all of its parts as a system of covenants. They all find their source and overarching link in one covenant called the covenant of redemption. Now we've talked about the covenant of redemption before and we're going to talk about it some more on Sunday nights at least and maybe even in Sunday mornings. And if you'll notice in the confession, <coughs> the next paragraph, or the next chapter rather, chapter 7, is entitled, Of God's Covenant. And notice there it's singular again. Of God's Covenant. What's interesting is there's only three paragraphs in this chapter. So this chapter is not meant to be exhaustive of all of what would be contained in covenant theology. But if we look at the whole section that Renahan has entitled of the covenant or the covenant, that would be 14 chapters and 61 paragraphs all addressing something related to the covenant. Either the covenant promises, the covenant mediator, the covenant uh, blessings, so on and so forth. So you see then this is a major theme of our confession. It's a major theme of biblical theology and revelation. It's a major theme of the gospel. It's a major theme that we put out there and say this is what our church believes. So then let's look at paragraph 1 of God's covenant. And I've entitled this paragraph, God the Initiator. This paragraph sets forth the fundamental reason why there must be a covenant between God and men and why it must be God's initiative to enter into covenant with men. So I'm going to do like I always do. I'm going to walk through and I'll add comments as it's helpful. And what I want to do is also pull out some basic concepts that deal with covenant theology as we walk through this, this paragraph and this chapter. Here's what I'm trying to do. I would like to give a good, healthy uh, serving of covenant theology, but I also want to do it in the uh, context of the confession. So I want to stick to the confession and let it be my structure, and then where I can, I'll sort of break off and hit other uh, topics as they come up. Um, again, in this, and I don't, I'm not trying to give an exhaustive uh, lesson on covenant theology. That's always the precursor to anything I do. This is not exhaustive. That way, if I leave out something, I can say, I said it wasn't exhaustive. So that's the point here. Not exhaustive. So, notice how the paragraph begins. The distance between God and the creature is so great. So we have here, first, the creator-creature distinction. The creature here is man. And we've seen in chapter 4, there is God, the creator, and there is creature, everything else. But here specifically, the creature is man. The distance between God and the creature, that is God and man, is so great. And there in those two words, well, it could say um, four words, distance is so great. That there is the formal need 
for covenant. That's why we have to have a covenant because the distance between God and the creature is so great. Why do we have to have covenants? Because of this great chasm between God and man in being, in nature, in holiness, in, in every possible category. There is a distance that the confession calls so great, which is an understatement. We saw this morning from Psalm 50 and verse 21. God says, you thought that I was one like yourself. That wasn't a compliment. That was a rebuke. It was spoken. Here's a completely foolish assumption. You thought I was like you. In Romans 1, verse 23, we learn that to exchange the glory of the immortal God for... Images resembling mortal man is a display of man's utter corruption. He's so corrupt that he would actually exchange God for creature, for images that look like men. And one of the famous passages that deal with this distinction, this chasm of Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are my ways, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The heavens are not a higher kind of earth. They're not the earth. They're completely separate. Two different things. God is not like us. We are not like Him. There is this great chasm. The confession uses the language of distance. But even that is the wrong word because it conveys the, the notion of a measurable expanse. You can measure a distance. This chasm between us and God is not measurable. It is infinite. We are different from God we're on different levels altogether, different kinds of being. We cannot meet together. We can't because He is God, Creator, and we are creature. Now the scripture reference that the confession gives is from Job 35 where I read before where, where Elihu or Elihu is, is teaching this very principle to Job. And if you still have your Bibles open, you can look there. Verse 5 is where, where he begins this lesson. He says, look at the heavens and see. And you imagine Job picks his head up. He says, behold the clouds which are higher than you. Now the implication here is you can look up and see the clouds. You have to look up to see them because they're higher than you. God's higher than that. Even when you see the clouds, you're not seeing God. The clouds are below God. You are even lower than the clouds. You're below the clouds. He's setting up this great distinction between God and Job. And we see elsewhere in Scripture that the clouds, he, he, he walks on the clouds. God does. So whenever you see that language of the clouds or looking up to the clouds, the point is, look how great God is how high and lofty He is. And then in verse 6, He says, If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against Him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to Him? If you are righteous, what do you give to Him? Or what does He receive from your hand? 
Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. What he's saying is, Job, in your sin, you're not affecting any change in God. You're not changing Him whatsoever. Job, in your righteousness, you're not changing God whatsoever. You are not affecting any change in God. The, the distance or the chasm between the Creator and the creature is too great. You're on separate planes here, Job. That's what he's saying. And so the biblical notion of covenant is necessitated by the fact that God and man are separated by this great expanse, both in being and holiness. So here's one aspect of a covenant that I want you to remember. A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. It's very simple. Our children should know that. Here, speaking specifically of God's covenant, it is an agreement between God and man. Now the covenant of redemption, we've talked about this before, we'll talk about it some more in the future. The covenant of redemption is not in view here. That would be an intra-Trinitarian covenant between Father, Son, and Spirit. But that's not what's in view here. We know that because in paragraph 3 we have this this language about in the middle of the paragraph, and it, this is God's covenant, is founded in that eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. That's a reference to the covenant of redemption. This covenant that we're speaking of primarily in this chapter is a covenant between God and men, not the covenant of redemption. So a covenant is agreement between two or more persons necessitated here by the distance between the Creator and Man, This distance is so great that confession says that, and here is an assertion, although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator. That is to say, by nature, as creatures, we owe God obedience. Because He is Creator, we owe it to Him. We have His image engraved upon us. We have His law engraved upon our nature. And so we owe God obedience. It is due to Him from every creature. We owe it to Him. When we work for men, we work for one another. This is parallel or horizontal here. It's either because we owe them something and so we're paying them, or we work and then they pay us because of some agreement we've, we've, we've come to terms with. We have to come to an agreement because it's not of the essence of me to work for you. It's not of your essence to work for me. You don't owe me anything simply by being human, and I don't owe you anything simply by being human. We have to come to terms together and agree, I'm going to work for you for this much, or you're going to work for me for that much. But with God, it's not that way. With God, we owe Him obedience simply by being born, because He is Creator and we are creature. By nature and in light of that distinction, we are obligated to serve Him. And because we are by nature obligated to work for Him, obligated to serve Him, obligated to obey Him, there is no reward. There is no merit. You don't earn anything. You just do it. And ultimately, if we were glorified, the reward would be the obedience. 
But of course we're fallen and so we, we don't think in those terms. But by nature we owe God obedience. That's all by nature. Simply because we are creatures and He is Creator. It is completely natural for men to obey God. Now our nature, remember, is corrupt. And so we don't want to do that. But as human beings, the perfect man, the, the two examples that we have, Adam pre-fall and Christ, they both obeyed God. Why? Because it was perfectly natural for them to do so. They were, Christ was, did not obey God because He was more than a man. He obeyed God because He was perfect, full, whole man. We owe it to God to obey Him. It's natural. So here's another aspect of the biblical covenants. In the biblical covenants, the relationship between God and men is developed beyond what is natural. Keep that in mind. We, we are allowed to go beyond what is natural. We owe God obedience and He doesn't owe us anything when we obey. He offers more than that. So the reasonable creatures, we do obedience, owe obedience to Him as Creator, yet the confession says we could never have attained the reward of life. Why is that? Again, because as creatures, we owe obedience to God. We don't get a reward for doing what we owe Him. There is no merit earned in, in doing what you're obligated to do. There is no merit owed by me. If you do something that you are obligated to me, I don't owe you anything for it. We might call this the master-servant distinction. And the, the confession here references Luke 17.10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Servants owe their master unmitigated obedience at all points. And when, when servants have rendered that fully, completely, perfectly, they've earned nothing except the opportunity to receive another command, to receive the next instruction. So to earn implies going beyond what was already owed. If you owe me $100 and you bring me a $100 bill, I don't reward you $5 for giving me what you owed me. I say, thanks. And you don't stand there saying, where's my, where's my tip? You owed it to me. It's, it's mine. So if I owe God obedience, He doesn't reward me for obeying. I don't get anything or earn anything out of obeying God. And so... Even though we do owe obedience to Him as Creator, we could never have attained the reward of life. That life there is eternal life. The tree of life in Eden was a reminder to Adam that once he passed the trial period in perfect obedience to God, he would be invited to eat of that tree and live forever in that state of perfection. Adam fell, we fell with him, all men are now dead in sin. Christ comes, why? That we may have life and have it abundantly. Christ comes to give eternal life. So this eternal life or this reward of life is the promise of a state of existence better than what we currently have and which we can never attain to. Not in a million lifetimes of perfect 
absolute obedience to every command of God with, with full heart and mind fully invested in, in perfect worship could we ever earn eternal life because we owe that to Him. So here's another aspect of a covenant. The biblical covenants set forth a promise of reward upon meeting the terms of the covenant. And the promise is of a state better than what they currently had or better than what is natural, we could say. The biblical covenants, in the biblical covenants, God sets forth a reward and says, if you meet the terms, you get this, and this is better than what you have. And this could not be, God could not do this, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. Now notice just two words, voluntary and condescension. God is not obligated in any way. God is under no force. He is under no coercion. God is not obligated by His relationship to us to offer us anything. It is completely voluntary and it is condescension. It is coming down to be where we are. To condescend is to lower one's position to meet somebody else at theirs who's on a different level, to come down. So this could not be but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. So here's another aspect of the biblical covenant. It is a work of free condescension on God's part. Every aspect of the covenantal relationship between God and man is something freely entered into by God and one in which He must come down to us and initiate the terms. And if you can picture, and this is thinking reverently, let's just imagine that we're on different levels and so I am going to speak to a basketball player who is seven feet tall and I can't talk to him because when I start talking my words hit his chest. I don't have anything to stand on to meet him face to face. The covenant and the terms offered are almost like that player comes down where I am and slides under my feet some terms to meet. Once I've met those terms, I step up and I'm allowed to speak with him and interact with him where he is. But he has to first come down and set the terms. That's how this covenant relationship works. It's a work of free condescension on God's part. He comes down, gives us the terms, and once the terms are met, we can then commune with God, have this reward of life. It's a voluntary condescension which He, that's God, hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So it is by way of covenant that God has been pleased to display His infinite condescension. The covenant answers the problem of the expanse. The, the chasm between creator and creature. The covenant, when we see a covenant, what we are seeing is God infinitely condescended to meet us so that then He can bring us up to where He is. The covenant expresses 
the condescension. So let's put all this together. All of the aspects of the covenant that I've, I've pointed out in summary form. Since we have no ground upon which we might stand and enter into any relationship with God beyond that of creator and creature, God freely comes down in infinite condescension to man's lowly estate and makes an agreement with him. In this agreement, God sets forth terms for man beyond that which is natural, because if man just does what's natural, he, can't, he doesn't earn anything. It has to go beyond what is natural, kind of like eating fruit on a tree. Don't do that. He has to go beyond what is natural, and he promises him a reward upon meeting the terms. That's the basis upon which Adam fell and all men fell with him, this is also the basis upon which Christ brings his people to enjoy eternal life. Now, let me read a long quote from Pink The covenants occupy no subordinate place in the pages of divine revelation, as even a superficial perusal of Scripture will show. The word covenant is found no fewer than 25 times in the very first book of the Bible and occurs again scores of times in the remaining books of the Pentateuch and the Psalms and in the Prophets. Nor is the word inconspicuous in the New Testament. And here is where you see the connection between what we've been studying on Sunday mornings. When instituting the great memorial of His death, the Savior said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. When enumerating the special blessings which God had conferred on the Israelites, Paul declared that to, the, to them belong the covenants, Romans 9, 4. To the Galatians, he expounded the two covenants, Galatians chapter 4. The Ephesian saints were reminded that in their unregenerate days they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The entire epistle to the Hebrews is an exposition of the better covenant of which Christ is mediator. Salvation through Jesus Christ is according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And he was pleased to make known his eternal purpose of mercy unto the fathers in the form of covenants, which were of different characters and revealed at various times. These covenants enter into the very nature and pervade with their peculiar qualities the whole system of divine truth. They have an intimate connection with each other and a common relation to a single purpose being in fact so many successive stages in the unfolding of the scheme of divine grace. They treat the divine side of things disclosing the source from which all blessings come to men and make known the channel, Christ, through which they flow to them. Each one, that's each covenant, reveals something new and or some new and fundamental aspect of truth. And in considering them in their scriptural order, we may clearly perceive the progress of revelation which they respectively indicate. They, that's the covenants, set forth the great design of God accomplished by the Redeemer of His people. Again, the point is, and hopefully you see, or beginning to see the importance of covenant theology. It's not just a funny quirk that we have. This is the whole system of the Bible. It is 
how we read the Bible. You remember when we talked about those, those presuppositional lenses that we read the Bible through, one of them was the covenantal lens. Because if we don't understand this, you're not going to read any of the Bible correctly. So hopefully in the weeks to come, in the morning and the evening, we'll be able to unpack some more of that language dealing with the covenants. I'll finish with this, another reference from Job chapter 25. Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in His high heaven. Is there any number to His armies? Upon whom does His light not arise? And here's the great question in all of Scripture. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm. How can man be in the right before God? It is only possible if God comes down to us and enters into a covenant, an agreement with us. And that's what he's done in Christ. That's what Christ was doing. That's why he says, this is my blood of the covenant. I've come down to bring maggots to God. That's what he was doing. And God speaking to his servant, the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 42, 6 says, I will give you as a covenant to the peoples, to the nations. You are the covenant. Here it is. Here is When we look at Christ, here is God coming down, meeting the terms, bringing people to God. The substance and blessing of the everlasting covenant comes to us in and through Jesus Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray.